We're going to be in the book of Matthew again this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 and 13 throughout most of the morning. Matthew 12 and 13. So if you've got a Bible, get over there. I have mentioned to some of y'all in the past that I was an engineering major at Texas A&M. Yeah, I uh, finished my degree, but to be honest, I was a, a mediocre engineer. It wasn't my thing as much as it is for many of you guys. I passed most of my classes with the exception of one class that I had the privilege of taking twice, and uh, that class was called Differential Equations. Uh, Yeah, Differential Equations is a math course, and uh, the problem that I had in DIFFIQ, as they call it in engineering speak, uh, the problem that I had with DIFFIQ the first time that I took it was actually not the math itself. Uh, It was that I had a professor who was very old school, he didn't believe in using computers in order to work on the problems at all. All of the other DiffEQ classes got to use computers. Well, that in and of itself wasn't even such a big problem. The problem was that this professor had a system of regulations for how you had to write your name and the date in a certain spot on every paper and a specific way that you had to number the problems and walk through the steps. So uh, I am not a guy that's generally good with administrative details. And so uh, I usually could arrive at the right answer to the problem, but he would mark off 50% or more at times if I didn't follow his regulations. All right, so I remember the very first set of homework that we turned in for this Diffie-Hugh class. Uh, When he came back into the class and he handed everybody's papers back, uh, I didn't get any papers back nor did maybe 20 to 30% of the class get any homework back. And the professor stood up and he said, some of you will notice you didn't get any work back. And he said, that's because you didn't write the heading correctly on your homework paper. So I didn't grade it. He said, all of that homework that I didn't grade is in that box over there. And if you do everything correctly for the rest of the semester, I will take it out of that box and I will grade your papers, right? At that point, I knew I was doomed because <laughs> I knew I was not going to do everything correctly. My papers were in homework prison, and there they would stay for the rest of the semester. Uh, the first test, I think I, I got like a D. The second test, it was even worse, and I just couldn't do it. Finally, at the Q drop point of this class, I sat down with this prof, and I said, okay, I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to have to drop, and he starts asking me questions. How'd you do in math in high school? And I did pretty well. How was your SAT score in math? I did pretty well, and he, he was confused, and he said, I think what's happened, and I remember this phrase. He says, you have been mousetrapped by fate. And uh, he said, you, you came in here as, as a freshman to take this course and you thought it would be easy like high school and you've just been mousetrapped by fate. Everything came together and it didn't work for you. And I remember thinking in my mind, I was actually mousetrapped by you, right? <laughs> you created a system that I could not obey. As hard as I tried, I was living under your law and I failed at every turn. Now, the reason I share that is because if you were a Jewish man or woman in the first century in the time of Jesus, just an ordinary person, you often would have felt that way under the system of rules and regulations designed by the Pharisees. Right, because the law itself, the Old Testament law, was created by God to draw people closer to him. 
Right? In fact, uh, the Jews generally did not consider the law itself to be a curse, but a blessing. Because God, through the law, had revealed himself to the people and said, I want to know you, and here's what my character is like. Here's how you can know me. All right, but the problem was this. The Pharisees had taken the law and they had codified it into hundreds of little commands. So that the ordinary person, no matter how much they wanted to know God through the law, they couldn't do it because they didn't have the time and the energy that the Pharisees had to spend all day thinking about the law. Right, And so the Pharisees created a system where they were the ones that sort of mediated between the people and God. And they said, you have to follow our system or you are not in. Right, so they used the law as a measuring stick to say, you fall short. They also used it as a stick to beat those people who couldn't keep up. Now, this is why when we get into the Gospels and we see the teaching and the life of Jesus, Jesus very quickly finds himself in conflict with the Pharisees. Right? It's not that Jesus disagrees with God's law. Right? Jesus does not violate God's law. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, look, I didn't come to abolish the law, but actually to fulfill it. Uh, But instead, what Jesus does is he comes and he reclaims the purpose of God's law. And he says, look, the purpose of God's law is so you can know God. The law was actually designed to bring you into relationship with God rather than to push you away, right? But see, just as my professor's regulations began to obscure the primary goal of the class, right, which was to learn math, the regulations of the religious leaders of Jesus' day obscured the primary goal of the law, which was that God wants to know you. And so Jesus begins to clash very quickly with the Pharisees and their system of the law. That conflict reaches a climax in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to see the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day very boldly reject Jesus' vision of life in God's kingdom. Jesus comes and he says, look, life in God's kingdom is intended to be a life of joy and of peace and of rest where you know God, you reflect God's character, and God knows you. And, and he clashes with their vision and they say, we don't want that Messiah. All right? This is going to be really significant for us as we look at this passage. And the reason is because Jesus is ultimately saying this, will you accept your Messiah for who he is rather than who you think he ought to be? Will you accept Jesus for who he is rather than who you want him to be? That's going to be the fundamental question for us of Matthew chapter 12 and 13 this morning. Will we accept Jesus for who he actually is rather than who we want him to be? To be. See, see, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had an idea of what they wanted their Messiah to be. They wanted their Messiah fundamentally to be somebody who affirmed their own perceptions of God. They wanted their Messiah to be somebody who would be strong and brave and go to battle against the Romans and the pagans and free them politically. They wanted a political Messiah. And Jesus comes and he says, look, my primary objective is to transform hearts and minds so you can know God. All right, will you and I accept Jesus for who he is rather than who we want him to be? As we read the scripture, 
often we're going to find that the Jesus that is presented there doesn't line up with our perspectives on who we think Jesus should be. There are a lot of alternative Jesuses in our culture, aren't there? For example, there's the prosperity Jesus, right? Many places around the country right this moment are preaching the prosperity Jesus. The idea behind prosperity Jesus is that Jesus' goal is to make you financially well-off and physically healthy right now. Right? And as we look at the kingdom of God, and as we look at what Jesus says, Jesus promises certainly a kingdom. We saw this when he talked about miracles. Jesus promises a kingdom where there will be no poverty, there will be no sickness, there will be no death. But that kingdom is coming in the future. And so Jesus didn't come to say, right now, I'm going to solve all of your problems. Right? That's the prosperity Jesus. Right? There's also still a political Jesus, isn't there? Jesus has come to affirm my perception of who ought to be president. Right? And, and I realize, even in this room, there are probably people who, that is, whether you like it to admit it or not, that is your perception of Jesus. You think, man, if, if anybody disagrees with my political party, they aren't following the Jesus that I follow. Right? And maybe the Jesus that we follow, though, isn't actually the Jesus we read in the Scripture. There's the self-improvement Jesus. Jesus came just to make me more polite and nicer and better so I can earn God's favor. There's the warm and fuzzy Jesus who came to approve all of my sexual and moral choices. And so we construct our own versions of Jesus. And if we're honest, all of us have some version of Jesus at times that doesn't line up with the Scripture. And so we will read certain passages where Jesus speaks about how we approach money or how we approach morality or how we approach politics. And it makes us uncomfortable at times, doesn't it? Right? Mark Twain famously said once, It's not the parts of Scripture that I don't understand that trouble me the most. It's the parts that I do understand that trouble me the most. Because Jesus is not afraid to shatter our expectations at times of who we think he ought to be. All right, so as we look at Matthew 12 and 13, that's the question. Will we accept the Jesus who is rather than the Jesus we want? Because Jesus will say, you you really have a choice. You cannot create an alternate version of your Messiah and follow him. This is why he's going to say to these Pharisees, you're either with me or you're against me. You choose to follow the Messiah that God has given or you choose to reject. And we'll see the Pharisees and the leaders of Jesus' day chose to reject him. But Jesus will issue an invitation to say, if you want real rest, if you want real life with God, if you want real peace, if you want eternal life, that never ends, then come to me and I'll give you that rest. That's where we begin as we look at Matthew chapter 12 and 13. We're actually going to start back at the end of chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. If you've got your Bible, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden 
is like. When you read that, doesn't that just bring refreshment to your heart? Just those passages. I, I read them and I just want to take a deep sigh of contentment. My guess is every person in this room would say, I need to rest. Or maybe you have plans to rest today. You've got your nap on the schedule. Uh, I will never forget so, so vividly when, when my wife and I had a five-year-old and a two-year-old daughter, and then she was actually pregnant with our third child, our son. We took a trip to Chicago for four days, right? We bought plane tickets. We paid for a hotel. We went all the way to Chicago for, for a few days so that we could uh, get some good relaxation, but we wanted to also see the city of Chicago. And about the second or third day that we were there, we woke up one morning in the hotel. We went out and we ate breakfast, and then we came back to the hotel room to begin to plan all the sights we were going to see for the rest of the day. And we realized we were so tired, we didn't want to go anywhere. So we sat down on the bed and we watched TV for about 12 hours, right? Sun came up, we found some pizza from the day before that we reheated for dinner, sun went back down, we didn't go anywhere and we kept laughing, we thought we paid money to come here and sit on a bed and watch TV, but we were so tired with such small people around, right? And they were so far away that we didn't feel guilty about actually resting, right? Almost everybody in this room feels that. I want rest. I want peace. Jesus is addressing people who feel harassed and burdened, not only by the, the demands of making a living, but also by the demands of obeying God under a harsh and legalistic system. And Jesus says, if you feel overburdened, you come to me and I will give you rest. Rest and life are found in me. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, that word yoke, that, that's not a thing that we really talk about a whole lot. For some of us, when we hear the word uh, yoke, this is what we think of. Okay, this is a yoke. That's a different thing, all right? Let me show you a picture of a yoke, okay? This is what a yoke is. Uh, We don't live in an agrarian society really as much anymore, but you see that wooden piece that is placed over the necks of these two animals, these two cattle here, and they're pulling a cart behind them. Often a yoke would be attached to a plow or something in a field. Right, And and Jesus uh, uses this imagery to describe what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had done to the people in Israel. That they had placed a yoke on them and then then attached all of this heavy load to it and said, you got to drag that load around and we're not going to lift a finger to help you carry it. So that in Matthew chapter 23, he would say, they, that is the Pharisees and the scribes, tie up heavy loads, they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That was the system of trying to please God under these Pharisaic regulations. And Jesus says, now you come to me, and it's not that there is no yoke. The yoke is following Jesus Christ in his path. Right, but the good news is Jesus says, I'm a good and humble and gentle king. Right? In other words, Jesus is for you. The Pharisees are against you. Jesus wants to bring you to God. The Pharisees wanted to keep you away so that you had to go through them. 
right? Jesus says, no, God is for you. God wants to bring you into life. And the way into life is you come to me and you listen to what I say and you follow my way and my yoke is easy. My burden is light because Jesus is a king of love. Right? So he extends this invitation. And then he's going to begin to illustrate what the invitation looks like as we move further into chapter 12. Jesus will illustrate this invitation. Look with me at chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned to Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And it's important to understand, obeying the Sabbath in the eyes of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders was the supreme test of whether you obeyed the law, right? Because breaking the Sabbath for many, many, many years was actually what landed the people of Israel in exile. God tells them, look, you have not observed the Sabbath. You have not given the land its Sabbath. So you're going to go away from the land so I can let the land rest, right? So they took Sabbath keeping very seriously. The Sabbath actually was a picture of the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, the land will produce like it is supposed to produce. There will be no sin, there will be no death, there will be rest and life as it is intended, and only that work that produces what we need to live, right? So here's what happened. Because the Sabbath was so important, the Pharisees had placed all of these regulations around the Sabbath, And Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field and they're hungry. So they grab some grain and they eat it. Now, this was not stealing. It was actually expected that those who grew grain would leave the corners and the sides of their fields for those who were hungry or for itinerant teachers. They grab some, they kind of uh, thresh it in their hands and then they eat the grain because they're hungry. The Pharisees say, look, that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath, right? Strictly speaking, that's not true. Okay, the law does forbid working and labor on the Sabbath, but what working and labor consisted of was a matter of interpretation. Is it an interpretation if I pick a piece of fruit and eat it on the Sabbath? Well, the Pharisees said, maybe it's not against the Sabbath, but just to be safe, you better not do that, right? And then they built what they called a fence around the law with all of these regulations. Jesus comes in and he says, look, 
Essentially, the Sabbath is made because God loves you. It's made for the benefit and the blessing of mankind. He's not violating the law. He's violating their perspective on the law. And he says, look, even David, the king of Israel, is able to go into the temple in a moment of great need and he eats the consecrated bread. He says, I'm greater than David and I have the authority to decide what life on the Sabbath looks like. So he heals a man with a withered hand and he makes the point, even on the Sabbath, if your sheep is dying in a pit, you Pharisees, you're gonna pull him out, aren't you? Because that represents monetary loss for you. How much more is a man worth than a sheep. God desires compassion rather than sacrifice. Jesus says, the life that I offer is one when you, where you are in contact with the true meaning of God, the true character of God, and the purpose of his law, which is not to oppress or push down, but instead to bring life. Well, what happens is the Pharisees conspire to destroy him. Right? They didn't like their regulations being shattered. And imagine that, uh, and I hope this doesn't happen to you, but imagine that this afternoon you were to break your fingers somehow, right? Maybe you drop something on them, you break your fingers, you cannot use your hands, and you walk into the ER and you say, I need help. And they say, Well, you need to fill out these forms. You say, Well, I can't. My hands are broken. Well, we have to have the forms before we can commence treatment. Can somebody else fill out the forms? No, you must, right? You, we can't forge the forms. You have to fill them out. Well, what do you want me to do? Right? You've created a regulation that now prevents me from getting health. And Jesus says the Sabbath was never intended for that. The Sabbath was actually intended for refreshment and life and health to say, we're going to take a day and trust God to provide. We're going to rest And be refreshed. So if I am sitting on the Sabbath and I cannot move my hands, it is absolutely lawful to heal on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a blessing from God. But the Pharisees don't like their regulations to be broken. So it says they go out and they conspire to destroy him because they don't like this illustration of life in Jesus' kingdom. And so what we see next is they're going to definitively say, look, we reject this Messiah, right? The Jesus who is here, the Messiah who is here, that's not the Messiah that we want. We want our own Messiah. And so they're going to reject Jesus' invitation. Uh, Bear with me. We're going to read a number of verses here, but start in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, maybe this is the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, this is a difficult passage. Uh, One of the most difficult passages maybe in all of the Gospels. Uh, It's this passage, what, what we call the unforgivable sin. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but I, growing up in the church, uh, I often would worry. Like, I'd lay, lay awake at night worrying, have I done it? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Uh, we're going to talk about what it is and why I don't think that anybody in this room has committed the unforgivable sin or, in fact, could commit what Jesus describes. Right? Here's what we see. Jesus has just laid out, this is what life in my kingdom, in the world that God is bringing, this is what life looks like where there is refreshment and life and hope. You follow me and you follow my law on your life. And I'll give you rest, right? The Pharisees, what do they do when they see him now continuing to heal? They say it's only by the ruler of the demons, Beelzebul. That's a word that means the Lord of the flies, Satan himself. Only by Satan does he cast out demons. This is the Pharisaic version of he's cheating. Uh, Sometimes I will get into a foot race with my son, right, who is seven years old. And invariably, if I begin to run faster, he says to me, you are cheating, right? Now, I'm not cheating, am I? I'm winning. Those are two separate things, okay? But in his mind, the only way you could be winning is if you're cheating, right? That's what the Pharisees are in essence saying. People say, look, couldn't this be the Messiah? And they say, there's no way he could be the Messiah. And here's why. He doesn't subscribe to what we think the Messiah ought to be. So the only way that he is casting out demons is if he is on the side of Satan. So he's got a bigger, badder demon behind him. And Jesus' response is basically, that's ridiculous. Okay, If Satan casts out Satan. If Satan goes around casting out his own demons, his kingdom will not stand. That would be counterproductive, right? A house divided against itself will not stand. Jesus said it a long time before Abraham Lincoln. And the idea is that if Satan is against Satan, his kingdom won't stand. He says, look, some of your sons, that is Pharisees, some of those among you, some of you teachers, you cast out demons. You're telling me I do it by the ruler of demons, then who are they casting out demons by? He says, if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then you need to realize the kingdom of God is here. The Messiah is here. And you are rejecting the king that God has sent. And then he goes on and he says, every blasphemy will be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? Blasphemy is simply a word that means you're speaking against something holy. You are profaning the things of God with what you say. And what did the Pharisees done very specifically here? Well, they have rejected Jesus' teaching. They have rejected Jesus' miracles. They have rejected Jesus' vision. And now they are actually looking at what God has sent through the Holy Spirit, working in Jesus' life. They have Jesus right in front of them, and they say, that's from Satan. And Jesus says, that is a deep and unforgivable blasphemy because the Pharisees ought to know better. 
Right? And, and this particular sin, I believe, as we look at the scripture, actually is one that is pretty bound to this time and this place. And the reason is because none of us are sitting in this exact situation where Jesus is standing in front of us in the flesh and we are operating as the representatives of an entire nation of God's people. Right? The, the Pharisees, as representatives of God's people, were rejecting Jesus in a very final and definitive way to say, our nation doesn't want this Messiah. There were no witnesses left to convince them of the truth. And so some years later, after the death and resurrection of Christ, the nation of Israel was overrun by the Romans and the temple was destroyed as a judgment against the people for rejecting their Messiah. Jesus says they've made their choice and this will not be forgiven. Right? And he's going to go on beginning in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. And what happens now is the Pharisees try to kind of cover up what they've done by saying, well, Jesus, if you just would show us a sign, Right? And the great irony is that's all Jesus has been doing throughout his ministry. He just showed them three in succession. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a lesser to greater argument. Right? The men of Nineveh were really, really bad. That's why Jonah didn't want to go see them in the first place. And Jesus says, even the Ninevites, the murderous, idolatrous, pagan Israelites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. Here you have the Messiah himself. And you claim to be the religious leaders of your people. And you will not repent at the preaching of your Messiah. And so the men of Nineveh will condemn you. This is the ancient version of saying, what you've just done, even Hitler would be appalled. Jesus says, even the men of Nineveh would have repented. And so they say, we don't want this Messiah. And Jesus says, very well, you've made your choice. And they reject their Messiah on behalf of the nation. The one they were expecting is not the one they received. So what does Jesus do? What we see toward the end of chapter 12 and then moving into chapter 13 is Jesus now rewrites his guest list. Jesus rewrites his guest list. There's a very unusual passage in Matthew 12 Starting in verse 46, it says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Now, we don't know what they were going to say, by the way, but we do know throughout his ministry, Jesus' mother and brothers, uh, particularly his brothers, didn't really believe him. Uh, They kind of mock him at different points. They disbelieve what he says. And my guess is they're standing outside to say, hey, uh, uh, Jesus, kind of dial it down on the whole unforgivable stuff with the Pharisees, 
right? Jesus hears what's going on. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying? No longer is entrance into the kingdom going to be on an ethnic basis. It's no longer, Pharisees, just because you were born in the nation of Israel that you can lay claim to the kingdom of God. But those who do my will, those who accept their Messiah, the invitation has been extended to all of them. And as you move throughout chapter 13, Jesus begins now to speak in parables about the kingdom of God. And the types of parables that he used illustrate the type of kingdom now that he's talking about. He begins to say, look, there's going to be a sower, or there's a sower, right? And he uses these four types of soil. And with, with two of the soils, there's no growth when they receive the seed. One of them, there's a little bit of growth, and then it dies. And then there's a soil where there's lots of growth and fruitfulness. And Jesus essentially says, look, some people will hear the message and they will respond and they will be fruitful and they will follow me, but the majority will not. And then he uses parables like this. The little mustard seed is planted in the ground and it starts small. And then it's going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Because the kingdom of God now is going to operate for quite some time in the hearts and the minds of those who receive the message. Right? No longer are we looking in the book of Matthew for an immediate physical kingdom that the Messiah will establish in Israel. But instead, that kingdom has now been postponed to a later generation because this generation said, we don't want this Jesus. And he says to his disciples, those who will listen, are the ones in which the kingdom of God will dwell through the power of the Spirit. And they will be my subjects. Some of you will be familiar with the parable of uh, Matthew 23, the parable of the wedding feast. And and Jesus tells a parable of this uh, ruler who has a big wedding feast for his son and he invites a bunch of people and everybody rejects his invitation. Nobody shows up. Right, So what he does is he says, you go out into the highways and the byways and you invite anybody who will come. The poor person, the stranger, the Gentile, anybody who will come in and be willing to wear the wedding clothes can come in. That is an image of what Jesus now says, this is what I'm doing with my kingdom. He opens the doors and he says, the people of Israel don't want me. So anybody who does, come on in. And he begins to build a kingdom of misfits and ragamuffins. And he changes the guest list. All who will follow their Messiah can know him and be a part of his kingdom. So what we see is that that this group of people in this generation, they said, we don't want Jesus as he is. We want a Messiah who will conform to our expectations. And Jesus says, well, there's only one Messiah to be had, and it's him. so, So as I read Matthew 12 and 13 again, the question that I keep coming back to is, will we accept Jesus for who he is? 
rather than who we want him to be. All right, if, if I'm honest, there are many times that I read the scripture and I read the words of Jesus and I read about who he is and what he calls my life to be. And I, I don't agree. If I'm honest, right, in the deepest part of my soul and spirit, I don't like all the things that Jesus said. Uh, Case in point, just this morning, as I was beginning to think about this service and all of the elements of this service and everything that was going to happen, I began to feel worried and anxious. And my tendency was then to say, I need to go and take control of everything. And then as I'm thinking about my passage and I'm thinking about the previous passages, I remember the words of Jesus. Right? Don't be anxious for anything. Don't worry. Can you add a day to your life or literally an inch to your height by worrying? I promise you I've tried. I can't. Okay? I don't like that version of Jesus. I want a version of Jesus that lets me control my life. That lets me decide what's going to happen. If, if we're honest, we want a version of Jesus that allows us to use our money like we want to use our money, right? And to be honest, I, on one level, resonate with some of the disciples when they saw that woman break the alabaster vial over Jesus' feet, and they say, man, what a waste. Why would you spend that much money just to worship? And Jesus says something that offends our sensibilities. Hey, the poor you're always going to have with you but she's anointing me for my burial. Worship is worth the cost. I say, but that's, that's not how I want to spend my money. The Jesus I read about in the scriptures will flip my life on its head at times. So Jesus will say, do you want to accept Jesus for who he actually is or, or, or who you want him to be? Do we want the prosperity Jesus? Sure, in our flesh. Do we want the political Jesus? Absolutely. I want a Jesus who will beat down my political opponents so I can win. Do I want the self-improvement Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. I had a friend in college who decided not to trust in Jesus because he told me directly, I think if I try a little harder, I can make this God thing work. That's a self-improvement God. Do I want the warm and fuzzy Jesus? Yeah, I don't want to read a scripture that tells me that my thoughts and intentions and feelings and actions aren't right. right, But Jesus says, you're with me or against me. Okay, but, but the great news is Jesus opens the gates wide and he says, all who will trust in me can have life. You feel weary, you feel burdened, by your sin, you feel weary and burdened by trying to make your life work the way you think it ought to work. Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Trust me, come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I promise you, I am a benevolent dictator. So trust me. That's the good news of the gospel. If you are in the room this morning and you don't yet know God through Jesus, you say, I don't know that I'm a Christian. The great news is Jesus says, no matter what you have done or thought or said that violates the law of God, 
although you and I are deserving of hell. Jesus died in our place to take our penalty, and he rose again. And he opens the gates wide, and he said, if you will trust in me, I'll give you rest. For those of us who know him, the the question really that remains is, will we follow Jesus as he is? As we open up the scripture and we say, wow, parts of this book challenge my presuppositions, challenge my politics, challenge the way I think about money, challenge the way I think about time. There are parts of this book and what Jesus says that I have a hard time agreeing with and obeying. Will we accept Jesus day by day for who he is and rely on the power of the Spirit to give us the strength to follow him? What is an area of your life, if you're honest, just in your own heart and mind, where you say, I don't really find it easy to trust Jesus as he is. And today, let's seek the strength from the Spirit. Ask God to change our heart and mind, as Jesus says he'll do, for those who will walk in his footsteps. We're going to celebrate communion here as we prepare to close out the service. And uh, communion is a great opportunity not only to reflect upon the gospel and how Jesus secured life so that he can invite us to his kingdom. So when we take the cup and the bread, we are remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But also when I think about communion, I can't help but be reminded that there was a guy at the Last Supper, at the very first communion, Judas, who said, you know what, I don't want Jesus as he is. So Judas got up and walked away. And so I think as we partake of communion, it is also a reminder of what Jesus has done and how you and I are called to trust in him and then to follow him for who he is. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, then you're welcome to partake of communion, whether you're a member of grace or not. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I think use the time to reflect upon the invitation of Jesus Christ. Will you accept him for who he is? As we prepare to celebrate communion, let's reflect on that question for just a minute. What is the area of my life in which God is calling me to say, I need my perspective transformed to follow Jesus for who he is? Let's prepare. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we praise you for your son and for the life we have in him. We praise you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He asks us to trust him. Father, I pray we would trust him as he is. I pray we would follow him as he is. Father, I pray transform our hearts and our minds through the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.